You're listening to a Milky podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we operate, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And with respect to where our collaborators, guests and listeners are, we extend our acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present. Hello there, my name is Patrick Hayes and this is Producers in Conversation. This podcast series is all about conversations with producers to share experiences, triumphs and difficulties as we try to find the answer to the elusive question, what exactly is a producer anyway? I've been working within the arts industry with venues, festivals and independently producing for nearly 10 years now and I'm still not sure I have an easy answer. This episode, I am joined by self-produced artist Anna Piper-Scott as we talk around the complexities of producing your own artwork, knowing how to look, ask for help along these projects, and also how to start small if you are looking to become a producer or get into those projects, and also how important it is to set goalposts and context to your work so you can measure success along your journey in the arts. Anna, in your own words, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners before we begin? So my name is Anna Piper-Scott. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, I usually describe myself as a comedian, a trans woman, and the voice of a generation. And I said that as a joke, and then people keep repeating it, which I'm quite appreciative of. Yeah, mostly a stand comedian, uh, occasionally uh, producing uh, my own stuff, usually, and done a bit of directing here and there. Communicator would be another thing. This is a bit of a cliche, but every trans person is an activist. I'm, I'm that by default, by obligation, more than necessarily desire. Yeah, I think that's the best summary. I think that's a great kind of <laughs> encompassing. And definitely, as I come from being the program manager of Midsummer, I can definitely attest to a lot of those attributes of sometimes more those kind of, I guess, like more focused community artists definitely get activism as they often want to do anyway in certain elements, but it's definitely thrust upon them in a lot of responsibility, which can sometimes, I've seen some very emerging artists very much struggle juggling that activism versus art mantle sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's. I think activism art is a, a very difficult thing to balance. I think activism comedy is an even harder one. Yes. yes Just to, can... to take things very seriously and not seriously at the same time is an uh, incredibly tough balance because uh, they're completely... Uh, opposed quite often. Well, luckily we're in a time where there's no political difficulties in our right, you know? Oh, yeah, especially for trans people. It's never been more peaceful for trans people than right now. Just Um, every trans person I'm talking to just be like, oh, what a relief. What a relief there's nothing's been happening for the past few months. What a, oh, we can just relax for a while. (laughs) I will just cover us both by saying we are both very clearly being sarcastic in a very visual forum as well, but this is a podcast. So I will just say that we are being sarcastic in that sense. Yeah. We're kind of here to talk around producing and all things kind of that art space. So I guess like one of the first kind of questions I've been asking in this podcast series is what is your definition of a producer? Oh, it's, it's real hard to pin down because every producer does different things, but specifically w- within a live context, I think of a producer as the person who makes the show happen. I think yeah. it's the best, simplest way to, to describe it. I think of, for me personally, as someone who is self-producing, that uh, producing is everything I do when I'm not on stage. That's a pretty apt points especially for that stage of producer who is live performance I feel like something that's come out of a lot of these conversations is that there isn't a very strong definition of what a producer is we're a very liminal flexible role that seems to fit into a lot of categories yeah and every producer does different things you know some producers will handle more of the admin side of things some producers will be involved in funding and you know making the show happen with money some will make it uh will be like creative producers who are acting in kind of a consultancy role but i I really think of it as yeah that the the producer is the person who makes the show happen you know the show couldn't have happened without this person's work great way of like looking at it and like as you mentioned just before you're a self-producing artist so i guess the next kind of question i have is like i guess why did you become that kind of self-producing artist? What was the reasons that led you to that point? 
I mean, I don't know if I've met an artist who hasn't self-produced at, at some point in their career. I mean, I think that's the kind of goal for a lot of performers is to get to the point where they can stop producing their own work and have someone take it over. I think it's very rare that someone comes in with someone already looking after that work for them. And quite often those people are are, are very privileged. People who have like a parent or a a loved one who has the financial backing and the the ability to kind of, you know, produce their work. But yeah, I I self-produced because I had to, you know? I wanted to make the show happen and there was no one else to do it for me. So I had to dive in the deep end and learn how to do it. Yeah, which I think is one of the main reasons we really wanted like a self-producing artist involved in this little suite of interviews that we're, do- we're doing is because Laura and I definitely, as part of Milky, we're like looking at the landscape of producers and everything. And producers have always been a bit of a short coming in that kind of like, there's not a bunch of us just existing, ready to take on work every day. but especially after the lockdown, there's been a lot of producers that seem to have like left the field or are really reducing the amount of work they're doing. And I think there'll just be a lot of call, as you said already, like a lot of artists have to self-produce, especially within that open festival, comedy festival, fringes, that kind of context. But with the financial realities of the arts at the moment, it's, it's really hard to justify that kind of extra mouth to feed, as it were, in the shortcoming until there is more money coming into the production. Yeah, which is a bit frustrating because it feels like, personally, I feel like I would be able to make better work and get better sales with a good producer behind me because it's just kind of like every hour off stage that I'm spending promoting the show, emailing out media releases, what whatever, doing admin is an hour that I'm not spending writing new jokes. It's an hour I'm not spending rehearsing. It's an hour I'm not spending, you know, like going over stuff and thinking of new things and, and like enhancing the actual thing I'll be presenting. And on top of that, it, it, it's it's not something I'm naturally accustomed or climatized to. You know, I feel like a lot of self-producing art, like the artist mindset and the admin mindset are, are very different. You know, like a, a producers are, are very creative people, but they're usually a bit more pragmatic than a creative person, a bit more practical. So it's just kind of like, I have to get into a different brain space that I'm not acclimatized to. And I'm like, if I have someone who can do that, who is good at that, they can be getting better sales. We can get more money in. And, you know, it's another mouth to feed, but it's another person to get food for that mouth, you know? Yeah, it's a real difficult balance to kind of juggle in that sense and I think you're right like it like producing is its own craft as it were and like as performers comedians actors dancers they spend so much time developing their own performative craft then you have suddenly this whole other job career lifestyle brain mindset that you have to kind of wrap your mind around as well as influencing the creative aspects of your art as well working within like as a producer within festivals I've seen a lot of artists have to struggle with that kind of balancing act. Yeah, Um, especially when you see people doing their first time producing or it's their first time doing their own show just by themselves, a solo show, and just them kind of torn between working really hard on making a show that they've never done that before and they they feel like they're going to have a perfect hour that no one will see because they didn't produce it properly or working so hard learning how to produce for the first time during all that production and then having a bunch of people come to see something they're not proud of. Yeah. You know, come, come see me be terrible for an hour or no one come see me be great for an hour. And it takes a, a long time to learn that balance as a self-producer. Yeah. Well, I guess it's interesting because I also think I've talked to a few artists that wouldn't even call themselves self-producing either. Like they don't really understand the work that they're doing to make their show happen would be classified as producing. They just go, I'm an artist making my work happen. So I guess when did you realise that you were a self-producing artist and had stepped into that role? It's probably a little embarrassing. I think it took me a couple of like festivals to realise. I don't think it was ever like a penny drop moment, you know? It wasn't just kind of like me being like, oh, no, I'm a producer, you know, that that moment in Jaws where the background suddenly recedes away. Uh, (laughs) It was just a gradual realisation that just kind of like I was hearing more and more about producers and thinking I should get one, thinking about, like, can I get an agent, can I get a manager, all those kind of questions that performers think about. And it's like, well, if I want one of these people, what do they do? And then finding out they're doing all the stuff that I've already been doing you know, uh, and there's not a lot 
that they would be doing that I haven't already been doing for myself. And most of the top level people I, I could be getting to produce me or manage me or be my agent, the the big difference that they would have from me is contacts and a network. And that's about it. And it's just, oh, I, I guess I, I guess I've been a producer this entire time. That's uh, embarrassing. Look, uh, I, I have gone through a similar process and I was actually just producing. I wasn't even being an artist in those standpoints. I was just kind of going, oh, I'm doing things and helping out. And then it took me a long time. I think it actually took like a professor that I knew at my university to pull me aside and go, actually, you're producing things. And I was like, what is this term that you're telling me that I am? So yeah, I think I do not think it's embarrassing at all. And as I said, I, I know a lot of artists who I would say, oh, you know, you're, you're working with budgets, you're doing your own marketing, all these elements. And they would be like, oh, yeah, but I'm just doing what I have to do to get the thing up. And that's what it is that's yeah, what a, um, a producer guess, oh, yeah. if i hired a producer that's what they would be doing is just doing what they can to get the show <laughs> exactly it's i often call myself like the swiss army knife of the arts like you just kind of have to have a little bit of every skill under the sun to make it all happen yeah i i have occasionally like worked with people who have been producing co-producing effectively with me I've just engaged uh, my friend, uh, Ollie Lawrence, to do some stuff with me for Melbourne Fringe, which I'm very excited about because they're wanting to become a producer. But it's very much, you know, in that Swiss Army Knife context, I don't think any one producer is good at all parts. So I think it's a kind of being a bit kind of like conscious Mm. as an artist, finding a producer and going, what am I good at? What do I need most from a producer? What do I need them to excel at? And I think that's why I'm really excited to be working with Ollie is just where moving into like a co-producer arrangement where I know the stuff that I've done at producing that I can handle, that I'm good at, that I can keep doing on my own. And I know the stuff that I want to delegate to someone else because I think that someone else would be better at it than I am. Yeah. I mean, and we've kind of touched on this in this little conversation, but I guess like what are the core skills that you think producers need or that you as an artist really want from a producer? I mean, what I really want from a producer is money, uh, but that's that's uh, very hard to come by. There, there's there's part of me that just wants a producer who's who's just a, a wealthy benefactor, just some lazy billionaire with money to to burn. More realistically, I think it's yeah, a sense of practicality, a sense of pragmatism, a sense of logistics. I think is the word I'm looking for. The the ability to kind of go from what the ambition is, what the end goal is, and going, how do we get there? Because I think a lot of performers, a lot of artists are like, okay, I want to do this yeah, thing with, I like, want to do a show with, like, 20 performers, or I want to I want to play at this, you know, theatre, I want to play to 300 people, I want to tour to this city, like, whatever the goal is. I think artists are really good at that part, really good at that kind of, like, ambition and the vision, but really bad at filling out the steps in between, you know? It's like, okay, you're here, and you want to yeah. be there, how do we get there? What's the path? We want to be at this pragmatism and practicality, not in a sense of kind of going, we can't do that, it's not feasible, but going, how do we make it feasible? How do we make it possible? And I think that's the, the best kind of producers, I think, are good at that and good at kind of like strategizing mm-hmm. all the different parts of that. Going, okay, well, you want to play this big theatre? Yeah, that means we're going to need great. a big marketing campaign to fill that theatre. So that kind of marketing campaign needs to be hitting these demographics. Uh, the ticket price for this kind of theatre needs to be this much. You're not going to be able to sell $30 tickets at this 800 seat theatre and, and make money. It needs to be $60 tickets. So if we want $60 tickets, we need to be advertising to this demographic that can afford to pay $60 for a ticket. And that's the kind of stuff that a good producer is is good at is, is answering those logistical questions and thinking of the logistical questions in the first place in order to be able to answer them. Yeah, I think that's definitely some in the multitude of ways that I've been producing. I think that's definitely been a way that I've tried to tackle it. Is um, not necessarily saying no, but I guess once again offering all of those options or steps and go, okay, cool. If you want to do that, these are the eight steps that we need to go through to get to that point or one of the biggest constraints is probably budget as we've already mentioned getting money into the arts is always a real difficult time also more of late with like a lot of funding rounds being cut a lot of budgetary um federal wise being cut down but you know it's still just a very difficult time within the arts sector to kind of make sure that budget is there and that's often one of my biggest conversation points is going yeah cool we could do that but unfortunately 
the budget hasn't extended that far. Yeah, and and I think it's also having a, an awareness of like the trade offs as well. Mm. So having a, a producer who can go, okay, here are the different ways we can do it. Here's the benefits of doing it this way. Here are the costs of doing it this way. Here's, here's the, you know, so going, okay, we have two venues that we can go to for this Fringe Festival. And the benefit of this one is that it is managed directly by the festival. It's in a prime location, but the venue hire is a bit bigger than this other venue, which is a bit further away. And being able to kind of like compare and contrast all of those variables and come up with a, a choice and, and knowing why you're making that choice for reasons other than just gut instinct, which is, I think, what a lot of artists tend to run on, you know, just kind of like not sure what the trade-off is and just kind of panicking and being like, oh, well, I'll, I'll go with this one because I just feel safer for some reason, or I'll go with this option because I, I know people who've performed there, so it can't be that bad. And they're, they're not able to like think through those logistical decisions as well as a, a good producer can. Yeah, I think that list of like pros and cons for most decisions is always a producer's best friend. I guess looking in those producing skill sets, like we've kind of talked about money and things like that, but what what is one thing you struggle with being a self-producing artist and how do you manage that in that sense? The the biggest thing I struggle with is, is so I've got ADHD and it gets pretty bad having ADHD, especially living an artist lifestyle, which means there's not a strong routine, which makes a lot of the symptoms of ADHD worse. So it means I really struggle with stuff like yeah. just the, the just the basics of replying to emails, hitting deadlines, doing my work at the same time that everyone else is doing work, which is more important as a producer than as an artist. You know, as an artist, it doesn't matter if I'm making art at 3am, but it does matter if I'm replying to emails at 3am or if I need to like call a venue and I'm doing my admin at 3am, you know? That's the stuff that really inhibits me is that kind of like, just like the, the pure like admin of getting things done in a timely fashion, both (laughs) during the day and over the course of like a few weeks, you know, getting stuff submitted on time. Especially I think the hardest thing for me is that I struggle being accountable to myself, which is a big common thing for for people with ADHD, you know, people mm-hmm. who are neurotypical will be like, oh, well, set yourself a deadline and give yourself a reward for meeting that deadline. And it's the ADHD response is like, okay, but if I'm in control of the reward, I can just give it to myself now. You know, it's like you get to have a bowl of yes. ice cream if you <laughs> reply to all your emails. I'm like, okay, but I know where the ice cream is. I can just have ice cream. Why do I have to? (laughs) Whereas the idea of disappointing someone is terrifying. So if I'm externally accountable to someone else, if it's like you have to get this stuff submitted on time, otherwise your producer is going to be annoyed or disappointed or whatever, that is so much more incentivizing for me. So that's the thing I really struggle with personally is hitting those goals and being and being accountable to myself. Yeah, I think I actually haven't really thought about it in that kind of sense. But yeah, I think you're right. Like being in that kind of producing mindset, you're kind of running your own business, which does have like a lot of flexibility in those kind of ways. But also, as you said, there are suddenly you've moved from like that artistic world necessarily of entirely art freedom to limited timelines of like you do need to work within at least some a little bit in that nine to five range to talk to venues and festival teams and things like that, because that's when they all work, <laughs> all those elements. Yeah, I actually hadn't really like processed in my own mind why sometimes I've struggled with that in an independent producing world, because I've also done stuff where I'm like, oh, you know, I'll do some chores during the day, just out and about when I can, and then I'll work at night time. But then, yeah, it really stumps and slows down and kind of creates that notice it though when i'm producing stuff that has other people involved that i yeah. I've, I've produced like lineup shows i put on an open mic night back in perth when i was living there you know variety shows whatever but producing stuff where i have other people who i'm responsible for and like if you know so if it's my own show and i don't produce it properly i don't make money the only person who suffers is me and i don't find that terrifying enough to motivate me but the idea of like booking a performer Mm -hmm. and then i haven't done the work to get an audience for them and that means i've let down a friend i've let down a colleague and that is much more motivating and it's much easier for me to be a producer when someone else is also the artist and it's much easier for me to be the artist when someone else is the producer yeah routine in its own right especially in the last two years has been completely thrown out the window for a lot of people um who are neurotypical So I think like definitely within those spaces, I think you're definitely not alone with people who are struggling to kind of um, the 
delayed gratification as someone who suddenly worked from home for the last two years became very hard to manage when it was like, but I could have a nap because my bed's right there the whole time. Why do I have to email 40 venues and then have a nap? I mean, this probably is kind of like adjacent to what you were asking of like, how do you, how do you manage it? And I think the really important thing for me, and this thing is very common for producers to be working from home is, is having uh, as much as possible a defined workspace. So I've made sure that I've got like a desk that's set up that's separate from where I do just hanging out. You know, I, I try not to make sure, mm-hmm. make sure I'm not working in my bed. You know, I think it's very easy to be like, I've got my laptop yeah. in bed. I've been watching videos and like, it, it's very easy to blend those spaces when you're working at home, but it makes it very hard to stay focused yeah. and be in a work zone because you're like, well, my bed's right there. And this is the room that I hang out and relax in. So it's very hard to work in, but also it ruins your ability to relax because it's the room that you work in, you know, like you're there, yeah napping or watching youtube or netflix or something and you're there being like my desk is right there and i can see it i should be working and i've got those deadlines and stuff like that so it means you never relax and you know do recreational stuff properly yeah and it also means you never work properly so it's very important for me to like try as much as possible have those be defined spaces it means that i try whenever possible even if i don't have to to leave the house to do work even if it's going to like mm-hmm. a library or a cafe or something like that, but just having that lesser routine, but it's making sure that it's it's a, a way to kind of like trick my brain into being in a workspace. Look, I think it's great to mention because yeah, like I was program manager at Midsummer when the big lock, the big scary lockdowns of not being able to leave your house except for like five kilometers, only one hour a day kind of vibe. So I was trying to run a festival but my office, because I live in a share house, was in my bedroom. And I, I effectively did just have a breakdown eventually because, yes, I definitely could not separate work bled into my life in all aspects, which was not a healthy outcome. But that was also a lockdown mentality. So I, even now when I'm working from home, now I'm working within Milky, I often do like go to a cafe when I need to smash out some work and stuff like that and just sit in a different space to kind of help refresh my brain. Yeah, it's, it's even little things that I, I found helpful of being like, uh, if, if I can't be in a different space, be in a different outfit, at least, you know, being like, I'm going to get dressed for work. And it might be literally me changing from one t-shirt into another t-shirt or me putting on my shoes, even though I don't need to go anywhere and still being like very lazy and casual and comfortable clothing. I'm just wearing a t-shirt and jeans right now, but I'm in a work mode. I'm not in my pajamas. And and I could have been in my pajamas on, on this call. No one would have known, but I'm in a workspace. I'm doing this podcast. I'm talking to Patrick. So I need to be in work clothes. And I think even that is, is really helpful. Yeah. I mean, this kind of leads quite nicely into the next question, because just for context for our listeners, I will just say we are recording in July 2022, because I just say that because every month this world gets crazier and crazier and that can impact how we talk around like the landscape right now. Yeah, just people listening um, two months from now going, why aren't they talking about the zombies? The zombies have changed everything. Why are they not talking about the zombies? We don't know about the zombies yet. (laughs) Crazier and crazier every week and I cannot believe it sometimes. But in the current climate of like this kind of weird, and I'll I'll do this in air quotes even though no one can see me, this post-pandemic time within Melbourne, how are you dealing with the current climate in regards to like the art sector and producing? It's, it's really stressful. I, I think there is, I think for a lot of performers and producers, this kind of conflict between wanting to put on art and put on shows. And I think everyone in the lockdowns realized how important seeing live performance is for nurturing the soul but also (laughs) there's still a virus going around and there's waves peaking and stuff like that and it's just kind of like how do I do this responsibly and ethically and still make money and still feed myself and you know am I am I being a bad person by encouraging people to come out of the house but am I being a bad person by not putting on art for my community that needs art. And it's just, it's, it's a hard thing to tackle. And I think it's just, for me, it kind of requires a bit of compartmentalizing of going, I am not the government. I am not in charge of controlling this pandemic. I can do the things that 
I feel are personally responsible, like wearing a mask and getting vaccinated, encouraging other people to do the same, promoting policies that I support, and just encouraging other people to do the same. And then whilst putting on my own shows, hoping that the people who are coming have done a rat test, encouraging to do that if I can, hoping the people who come wear masks, and just hoping that when I'm putting a show on isn't coincidentally a bad time, which I think is the, the most stressful part of it, is going, I am, you know, as a producer, you're always kind of working on this like two, three, four month timeline between when you start producing the show and when the show happens. and that is so much more unpredictable than it Mm. used to be. You know, it used to be that, like, I know what things are going to be like in two months. I know what July is typically like, and I know what August and October are typically like, whatever. I know what this festival is typically like, and now you're going, am I going to put it on and it's going to be in the middle of a wave and it's going to be the peak of a wave and no one wants to leave the house? Or am I going to decide not to do a show and then it turns out that is, like, the low point of a cycle or there's a brand new drug treatment and suddenly everyone's, like, happy to leave the house and I could have been at a really successful festival making a lot of money and I chose not to and and it's just constantly balancing those trade-offs but it's just it's like I'm not an epidemiologist I'm not a policymaker I can't answer those questions and what I what I've got right now is a mantra which I I got from from my therapist so thank you to her is, is plan for success and improvise for failure that's my little mantra of just kind of like do all the things that you need to do to make something successful plan on it being successful, hope for it being successful, and if things go wrong, trusting that I have the ability to improvise and think on the fly, you I know? Think, I think that's a great kind of flip of that, because what's the, what's the old adage is, like, hope for success, plan for failure, or, like, those kind of, like, hope for the best, plan for the worst kind of thing. But as someone who has that mindset, that was an incredibly stressful time when the worst was happening all the time around me for the lockdown. But yeah, I think that's a a really great encapsulation of definitely the timelines that you mentioned was a really big part of my struggle within that coming out of lockdown was that things take months and months to plan, organize, curate, produce, market, all those elements, but we couldn't predict a week by a week. It was this really weird, yeah, duality. And then suddenly it came out of the hands of the government when we had mandate. And then it all shifted into personal responsibility for the artists to figure out how ethically they sat in that situation and all those kind of elements. So, yeah, definitely echo a lot of that stress within the current climate right now. Yeah, I, I don't think there's ever going to be easy answers for this. I think... It just requires mm. us to be like just advocating as much as possible for that. That public health is a public responsibility, which means it's also a government responsibility, you know. And that doesn't necessarily mean lockdowns. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that we go back to managing how we did before. But it could mean a bunch of other policy measures, rebates for installing new ventilation or something like that. Uh, creative solutions, mm. um, the kind of solutions that producers are great at coming up with, and that politicians are less great at coming up with. I think well. You know, we kind of mentioned a little bit before, like, it would be great if the government had subsidies or supports that were there to kind of, like, help reduce the risk, financial risks for artists as well right now. But I guess we'll see what happens over the next couple of months, which kind of leads very well into the next kind of question, which we you mentioned before that you'd love to find, like, a sugar daddy producer to kind of cast money and self-fund these kind of projects. But at the moment, how are you funding your shows? Like, how do you go about funding a project? It varies. I have been quite lucky in terms of grants and stuff like that. So, I mean, for instance, I'm I'm going to Sydney Fringe and they have done a lot of great work in getting their festival funded. So a lot of the upfront costs have been uh, waived or mitigated in various instances. Same thing with uh, Melbourne Fringe, which uh, is coming soon. I, I We're doing a couple of shows there and was Great would have some micro grants that uh, waived my registration fees. Most of my work, though, is funded by my work. You know, usually uh, the grants I'm getting are kind of just uh, lowering the upfront costs. They're not funding the show necessarily. But I try and just do whatever I can to get the costs to come out of the ticket sales wherever possible. That's usually the kind of stuff mm. I opt for when kind of choosing between venues is I would rather hire profit share than a lower upfront mm-hmm. cost. 
So doing a venue where they pay 30, where I pay them 30% of my ticket sales, and that turns out to be three grand, four grand, something like that, rather than a venue hire upfront that's a grand. Because I know that I put on good shows. I know that I'm good at getting people in to see my shows. I occupy a, a pretty distinctive place in the market. There's not a lot of uh, comedians who do what I do and who can speak about the experiences that I speak about in the way that I speak about them. So I'm pretty good at getting audiences in and I'm usually best off when the audiences are the ones funding the show. That's what I'm usually trying to do. And I'm trying as much as possible that the profits from one show, the stuff I take home, trying to put that in like a separate savings folder in my bank so that I can then use what I've made from one show to fund the next you know, iteration of it. Yeah, great. And I think it's worth mentioning to look into those micro grants for Sydney Fringe, Melbourne, like a lot of fringes do run those micro grant programs now and they're great and awesome to kind of help, as you said, not necessarily pay for the entire cost of a show, but to help cover those like registration costs, reduce the overall costs of shows. So yeah, not just micro grants for, but I, I feel like festivals are pretty, open to talk to. I mean, you, you might want to correct me on this as someone who works at Midsummer, but in my experience, they'll have on the page, they'll have on the stuff, this is what the registration fee costs, this is what the, you know, fees are, this is what upfront and stuff like that. And that's 90% of the time going to be the case. But every now and then you can talk to them and be like, I really want to do this. I've done this before, blah, blah, blah. This is what I'm struggling with. How is there some way that you can help? And sometimes it might be that they waive it. Sometimes it might be that it's only a cost you'll pay up front, but you can pay it on the back end because they, they like you or they care about your show. Or it can be that they, they can point you towards a resource that you might not know about. They can point you towards a micro grant. So if, if I run into something money related as an issue rather than just like panicking or, or scrambling to find the money or opening a credit card account or something like that, it's usually best to send an email to the festival explaining what the issue is and the bind and, and seeing if they can help be part of the solution. Uh, and they often want to be, you know, the festivals want to make the art happen. They want the shows to happen, uh, especially if they booked you into a festival managed venue. It means that they care about what you're trying to do. So let them help you if they can and and sometimes it's not going to be a big multi-grand grant that funds your entire season but i've been able to get grants in the past for instance of like a, a grant to cover the cost of the nozzle performer because there's access grants there's specifically grants for accessibility yeah. that aren't just for art you know and it, it's kind of like okay well that doesn't maybe if i didn't have that grant i wasn't going to get an online performer but uh, an online interpreter but if i get that grant i get an online interpreter i get more ticket sales from a specific part of the community that's underserved it, it's stuff like that that I, I try and look for and try again this is producing it's being creative with the solutions you know it's not just kind of go, just here's the obvious answer and we can't do that, so we can't do it. It's here's the obvious answer, we can't do that. What are the less obvious answers? How do we be creative? Maybe I've seen performers fund shows by getting someone to sponsor them, you know, because they're doing a show about like a specific industry, you know, like maybe they're doing a show about fashion. So why not get a clothing store? to fund your show and you can wear one of their outfits and you can at the end of the show saying I'm wearing an outfit I've dressed by this store go see them and that's not compromising the art and it makes the art happen it's like it's, it's like it's not just the government or your own money necessarily that can make a show happen yeah I think that's a great point and I also like really want to like kind of reference as you were talking to like reaching out to festivals and asking for help as someone who's worked within festivals i would encourage anyone who's feeling conflicted or not sure how to make something happen to reach out to the festival teams that's kind of what their whole shtick is and that's what they're there to do is to help and support the best that they can on a separate point i've also like as someone who's applied for a lot of like government grants as well there's often contacts or supports within those systems where i've always called and like spoken through my grant proposal and it's like made sure that it does verify, does align, does make sure all those points, which is that little bit of extra work. But sometimes they've given me really strong hints about what are being looked for in those grants. And then I've been able to like kind of angle and change my application for that. Yeah, it's worth an email at least. And then if the worst that happens is people just tell you that they can't help. And then you've, you've lost five minutes of sending an email, basically. That's a really great kind of takeaway from that. Yeah. You're never going to send the email and be, you know, 
more poor afterwards, you know? Never going to send an email and be like, oh, now I have even exactly, less money now that exactly. I've sent this email. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of the whole whole shtick. And it's, you know, people are paid to help and we should get as much help as we can in those situations, which I know like we were kind of have mentioned this and touched on it a little bit in the past as well. But this is the question that I just like to ask, especially within the kind of a, an artist context. Why do you think producers are so important in the art sector or do you think they are important in the art sector? I think I think they're really important. I think one of the reasons the art sector is is suffering at the moment is is, is there, there's a dearth of producers. There's mm. not a natural correlation between the kind of brain that can produce works of art and, and the kind of creativity that requires and the kind of person who can make a show happen and that and and it's still that's still creative work but it is a different kind of creativity you know the difference between like i want to express an idea and a theme and the creativity of of problem solving and there's an overlap but it's it's not a natural overlap and i think a lot of artists are terrible producers I, i don't think of myself as being a particularly great producer you know i i find that a lot of my my shows sell on word of mouth which says to me yeah. that the work I'm doing to market the show is not as good as the show itself. That I, I struggle to to promote mm. it, struggle to get people in. But once people are in and see the show, they go out there and they spread the word. And then I, I sell the tickets, which means like, oh, I'm doing something really good. But people are like, you have to go see this. But I, I'm not conveying that in my marketing or my advertising as, as well as I could be. And I think that's probably happening to a lot of people out there. And there's probably a lot of people who are worse at producing than I am, who are as good as artists or probably even better as artists. And they're not even getting that initial batch of people in to then spread the word of mouth, you know? Like, there's a lot of great performance and great art that's going unseen because there's not a producer there to help get the word out, get the audience in to see it. And there's what 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 is it you know if if i tell a joke and no one's there to laugh did i even tell a joke you know very zen cohen yes. type approach you know yeah, was the comedian on stage if yeah. a show falls in a forest <laughs> yeah someone i mean you, you had a quite a great response in comedy festival just passed you got quite a lot of great word of mouth from what i was seeing on the socials i actually didn't get to see your show because i was working on four other shows and was terrified of getting sick in all yes. the states but yeah, I think you're quite right. And we even found that within like kind of the milky standpoint, like we marketed it as much as we could, but it was also specifically this year was a lot more about word of mouth and kind of friends convincing other people to see shows because I think people were just a lot risk more risk adverse than yeah. um, just going and punt, oh. like going on a random punt to see a show. But this this wasn't just my most recent show. This has been like a, a trend I've noticed for a few years with my work, even prior to the pandemic, and and that kind of like wariness about going out. Just that I I would just struggle to get those upfront sales compared to other people I know who were better producers, mm-hmm. and I would get those ticket sales on the back end. So it, it still ended up being you know very profitable and successful and having a great time. But just me going like, okay, well, how do I get those people in at the start of a show? And how do I get like a bigger number yeah. uh, for the opening night so that those people spread more word of mouth? You know, it's just me learning a lot easier, and a lot better how to be good on stage than I have been able to learn it off stage. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely it's definitely a thing that I've seen. And I don't know if there is actually, and you know, I should have a caveat, which I should have said earlier, like we are not going to fix the art sector or suddenly have any magical solutions for a lot of these problems in this conversation. But one of the main points of this kind of conversation is just, I guess, solidarity across for art sector workers to kind of connect and go, oh, I'm feeling similar. I'm experiencing similar things because often, especially in the producer world, we find ourselves a bit siloed from each other in weird ways. And that's kind of one of the reasons that this podcast is hopefully going to exist we're going to get we're going to go from the macro into the micro a little bit now what are some of the moments that you've been really proud of your producing skills we've talked about shortcomings but have there been any moments you've been like yeah i've I smashed that um it's when, when you're self-producing it's kind of hard to delineate those successes from each other to kind of go 
you know, I sold out this show or, or I sold out, uh, sold more tickets this season than the last season or, you know, someone said something really special to me after a show and you're like, is that a, a, a function of me putting on a good show or is that a function of me being a good producer and getting people to come to the show? It's, it's like, for, for instance, when I did uh, my last show uh, at Adelaide Fringe, it, it was really special to me, the number of trans people who came to the show. It was probably, like, the biggest trans attendance I've had uh, across all the seasons of that show. And it was one of the only times I've done the show in a venue that wasn't licensed, which meant that teenagers came to the show. And I had trans teens with their parents, you know, beautiful non-binary kids who were, like, 13, 14, had they, them pronouns, their parents supporting them, like, I feel really proud of that moment and that those people were able to see someone like me on stage and, and feel moved and, and, and were able to laugh and, and forget about their problems for a while. I don't know if that's a function of me being a performer or if that's a function of me being a producer. And, you know, I, if I had a separate producer for that show, I would want them to be as proud as I was in that moment, you know? I wouldn't, you know, if they were like, oh my God, I feel so proud that all these, you know, trans teens came to see the show, I wouldn't have this feeling of like, well, no, that's what I did as a performer. You are not involved in that. But they're so intertwined that it's really hard to separate those moments. And I can't really think of moments where I was proud of myself just as a producer. Like the one I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to where I think I feel like I will be proud as a performer is there's a show I've been, I uh, will be proud as a producer rather is there's a show I've been trying to put on for a while. It got canceled a couple of times because of lockdowns and stuff like that. But it's a show I was putting together called T for T where it was an all trans showcase specifically for an all trans audience. And the whole idea was just kind of like everyone who's making money of the show, apart from maybe the venue is trans. And everyone working on the show is trans, and everyone be performing as though the entire audience is trans. Because I feel like a lot of trans performers have to like stop and explain words to cis people. Like, for instance, the word cis. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and, and and I was really proud, and like the the that was felt like an idea I came up with as a producer. That was me going, I have an idea of a show I want to see, and I'm going to make it happen. And my performance in it as a host was very secondary to it, and still is. And it was more like, I want to see the show happen, I'm able to make it happen. And once I announced it and started sell- promoting it, every time I announced it, it sold out very quickly. The demand for it was high, and that felt really proud as a producer of me recognizing not just a demand in an audience, but a need and finding a way to facilitate that. That's the kind of stuff that I think would make me proud if I was like, if I, if I started heading more into being a producer and kind of like a band performance would be not just putting on good shows, but recognizing a need in an audience, you know, a need that only art can fill and providing that for them. Also, I'll just say for our listeners, if you're expecting us to explain what this is, you can just Google it. I'm not going to actually explain <laughs> that in this day and age. If you're in the arts, you probably should know that term. I'm sorry. But on the flip side of that and kind of like solidarity, <laughs> we're also asking a question of what is a mistake that you made as a producer because I think a lot of us have these kind of um, marks of shame. I will, I'll put in air quotes as well. But it's also just like as a learning experience, because no one really teaches us how to produce. We just have to kind of stumble our way through it. We've all had these kind of experiences. Have you got one that kind of comes to mind? I, I, I don't know if I can really think of a like major giant uh, mistake of, of just kind of like, you know, oh, I set the venue on fire. <laughs> It's, I think, more kind of gradual realizations that I'd been doing things wrong for a long time. You know, kind of more that, like, embarrassing thing of, you know, when you find out you've been using a word wrong your entire life, that kind of like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I think the big thing I learned that I wish I'd learned a lot earlier is every time I'm doing a show or a festival or a season or something like that is having a very clear idea of why I'm doing it. Because I think a lot of people have this idea of just, I'm going to put on a show and I want it to go well. And they don't define what going well looks like. And like, is going well selling a lot of tickets? Is going well making a lot of money? Is going well getting good reviews? Is going well developing a work that you can tour? Going well having a lot of industry people see it? Having agents come and see it? Like, there's so many different measures of success. Especially for people who like doing a show for the first time. Especially, like, self-producing for the first time. It's just like, 
if you want to just do the festival because you just want to learn how to do it, that's great, but you need to understand that that's what you're measuring your success by. And you will ruin yourself if, like, you don't know that because you'll be going through a festival being like, everyone's getting these great reviews and I'm not getting reviews. Everyone's doing this and, you know, people are selling so much more tickets than I am. Like, well, was that your goal? Because you would have been able to meet it if you knew it ahead of time and you were aiming for it. But if your goal is to just do the festival, then why are you criticizing yourself for poor ticket sales when you were never aiming for that? Why are you criticizing yourself for not getting reviews if your goal was to develop the work? There's so many things you can get out of doing a show, and they're not all just profit. Sometimes they are. But for me, for instance, uh, I'm now, like, when I'm doing a show, I'm planning it as, like, a multi-season thing. So my most recent show, Such an Inspiration, debuted at Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, but the goal with that was to put on a new work that I hadn't put on. It was me being ambitious with what I was trying to do on stage and how I'd written the show. And it was me trying to make sure it worked. Like that season at Melbourne Comedy Festival was effectively a development season. The goal wasn't to make money. The goal wasn't necessarily to get great reviews. I didn't put my focus into that. My goal was to focus on the work itself and focus on getting in enough audience members so that I could tell if the show was working. And now that they've done that, the goal for the next two festivals is to build hype and buzz, you know, try and get in reviews for a show that I now know works. And the goal for next year's festivals is to make money using that combination of having a development season to prove it works and having some seasons that built hype. And those two things together mean that I can now go really confidently next year with a show that works really well and has a bunch of hype behind it. and make money and profit and have it be a lot of ticket sales. And I think if I just kind of gone like, I hope it goes well every time that would have been a really bad strategy. It's just kind of like every time you're doing a show, like what is the goal? Uh, What does success look like for this show, for this season at this festival? I think that's a really brilliant point. Like Milky as a company, when we kind of do like producing boot camps, we talk about um, knowing your why, which is a similar basic moment of that like kind of going you need to kind of understand what you're doing why you're doing it and then I think that's another point of like why a producer is so great because producers often are able to kind of draw people back to that main mission statement when sometimes artists get close to the work especially if you're in an emotional work where you're creating and personal stories or elements like that it can be very easy to start losing that why because it's oh we're just doing it for the reviews but then suddenly you're seeing other artists having sellout shows and everything and you're like well actually this week we just wanted to get all the reviewers in get those little stars so when you go to comedy festival all the posters have all these four or five stars on it this isn't our make bank season and those kind of elements so i've definitely had a lot of those conversations with artists as well so i think that's a great Yeah, I I think it's just, you know, I mean, you can have those other goals and maybe you have multiple goals, but it's just kind of like prioritizing what those goals are and how you're approaching them because you'll you'll never have as much time to work on it as you want and you'll never be able to have all the success. I mean, some of the things are even mutually exclusive, you know? If your goal is to have a bunch of your fellow artists see the show, they're going to be coming in on artist passes and complimentary tickets, and you can't have that and also have a sellout season. They're mutually exclusive, you know? You can only have a lot of artists seeing your show if there are empty seats for them to fill. So if you're trying to do all the things, it's literally not possible. So it's kind of like, what are my goals how do I prioritize them? And it may be even just being like, I want to be sold out at the end of the season. I want a lot, a lot of artists to come at the start. Dividing those goals and, and, and maybe even treating a season as like two separate seasons. Why I, I consider my biggest mistake because I think for the first four or five years of me being in festivals, it was just me putting on a show, trying to make it good, trying to do all the things and getting some level of success, but not having everything and being really confused about why I felt bad about a show that I was proud of and why why the show wasn't successful and it's because I didn't know what success looked like for each of those seasons and if you try and do all the things you're going to be getting like a 6 out of 10 on every score you know or 5 out of 10 or 4 out of 10 and it'll be like oh I didn't sell out but I had like 60% tickets and I didn't have all the artists come see my show but I had some and I, I didn't get a lot of good reviews but I got two and, and, and you'll just be like disappointed on all fronts been there 
very much. Well, I guess like just just being aware of time and everything as well. Our closing question is normally if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice. But to be honest, that last question kind of sounded like that. But if you had another piece of advice that you'd like to give over to a younger producer, and I say younger as in career-wise, not necessarily age, because, you know, some people just start producing at all sorts of age. But is there a piece of advice that you'd like to give to a younger version of yourself? This would be uh, covered that, but this would be more like advice I'd give to someone who, who's thinking about producing. Let's um, do it. If, if you're thinking about producing for someone else, I would say, like, go for it. There is a dearth of producers. I've been hungry for a good producer for years and not have not been able to find one. And if I have found one, they are too busy. You know, good producers will never hunger for work. They might hunger for money, but they'll never hunger for work. So, I, I, and it's very easy to dip your toes into it. You know, it's very easy to kind of go approach one of your favorite performers and ask if you can help. And that help might just be, you know, helping them uh, with their posters or being an assistant on a photo shoot or something like that. And you you can escalate slowly into producing. You don't have to dive into the deep end if you're not self-producing. You only have to do that if you are self-producing. And what I say, if anyone is considering self-producing is, is if you've not done it before, start with a split show you know start with a split bill start with something you're producing with a friend who is also learning to self-produce and and divide that labor and learn together and trade notes i feel like that was maybe the other big mistake that i did early on is i was trying to do too much by myself kind of produce just an hour of only me on stage and that would have been a lot better if it was me and uh, one or two other performers and it's like hey come see the the trio doing this and i i did that later in my career and i wish i'd done that earlier and i wish i'd maybe started that way yeah yeah i can get that that's a great i think that's great advice to hand on as someone who has done all of those things myself and taken on a bit too much and then felt very intimidated but i don't think it has to be at the start like you can dip your toes in and just start with elements because I think even artists if you are looking at becoming a producer those little bits are still so much off an artist who self-producing's plate that there's a lot of need and want within that kind of area as you said yeah I mean maybe maybe the advice is if if there's good producers out there uh talk to me because I don't want to do it anymore I just want to be on stage you have heard it here first well not first because Anna's been talking about it quite religiously (laughs) but (laughs) yes producers reach out and I said the hype is now this is coming out in August so you might not be able to talk about your Melbourne Fringe show yet that just stay tuned my social media channels I will be announcing a couple of things at Melbourne Fringe and I am doing Sydney Fringe uh, as one of their headline shows uh, already on sale for that right now as we're recording so and listeners what we'll be doing is we'll just have all the links for all these things in the show notes so I'm going to get those off Anna and then just go through and click those there just to save anyone trying to type things out thank you so much for your time yeah thank you for having me Uh, it was really fun awesome thanks listeners and looking forward to catching you next time hey thanks for listening to the podcast Milky is your go-to for getting your show to the stage we run industry leading courses and workshops for independent artists and producers covering everything you want to know about producing a show want to find out more head to our website milky.com.au that's m-i-l-k-e dot com dot au